Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. It's my pleasure to join you all, and my honor, uh, in honoring the 800th anniversary of the birth of St. Bonaventure. Whether 1217 represents the actual year cannot be determined with any precision. As likely as not, the year could be 1218 or 19. But when the occasion is one so joyous, several celebrations over several years is both justifiable and suitable. Despite the tremendous efforts by the Karaki Fathers some 125 years ago, and a formidable array of studies since, Bonaventure's thought remains understudied compared to the literature available upon his fellow Franciscans, Don Scotus and William of Ockham, let alone the massive literature devoted to the Dominican Thomas Aquinas. Indeed, I would suggest that only Albert the Great could compare with Bonaventure in the mentioned but largely ignored category. Though even then, the situation with Albert is changing now that the Cohen edition is moving along with increasing rapidity. We might well consider and wonder why Bonaventure's, Bonaventure's oeuvre is comparatively neglected among medieval philosophers studied at the present day. A fundamental reason could well be that Bonaventure's main theological and philosophical work, his magisterial commentary on the sentences, remains unavailable in its entirety in English translation, though Professor Hauser and I have managed to produce a volume of selections from the first book of the commentary. But even here, I'm not so sure whether the availability of a translation is all that decisive a consideration. For as Professor Hauser and I discovered while translating the selections that we did translate, and as Dr. Clark, Dr. Benson, and I have discovered recently in doing further work, Bonaventure's thought in its most speculative dimensions is articulated in conversation with the philosophers and theologians of his time at Paris, that is, circa 1234 through circa 1260. The views of the figures that many of us do not know or of whom we've only heard the names are nonetheless quite outstanding for the seraphic doctor. Not only Alexander Hales, Jean de la Rochelle, Arnaldo Rigaud, among the Franciscans, but Robert Kilwardby, Roger Bacon, pseudo-Roger Bacon, various anonymi among the masters of arts, as well as Albert the Great, Hugh of Saint-Cher, notice I did not say Hugh of Saint-Victor, Hugh of Saint-Cher, and Guéric de Saint-Quentin among the Dominicans. In a word, understanding Bonaventure's thought is a very tall order because so often the precise point he wishes to make is only fully comprehensible once one has become acquainted with the views of these little to known, little known to us figures whose texts are only available for the most part in manuscripts. But I would add one further point for my fellow philosophers, historians of philosophy, theologians, and historians of theology. Until, through intensive research, we uncover and study this background to Bonaventure's philosophical and theological enterprise. We shall not adequately understand him, and he will not enter into the prominent position that he so richly deserves among the greats of medieval philosophy and theology. 
Unfortunately, I do not expect to live long enough to see <clears throat> this worthy achievement actually accomplished. But by God's grace, I do hope to make some contribution to moving scholarship in that direction. The present lecture will begin with a brief sketch of Bonaventure's life, emphasizing for the importance of the development of his thought, his early years, before he became Master General of the Order, and even in some respects before he entered the Franciscan Order. Thereafter, we shall turn to some case studies of how Bonaventure's thought stands out in the philosophical and theological context of his own time. There will be three of these cases considered, though admittedly, six would be a worthier and more seraphic number. <laughs> the examples to be considered are Bonaventure's cognitive theory and epistemology in general, the second case, the doctrine of angelic cognition, and the third case, his use of the logical theory in the form of the theory of supposition to resolve theoretical difficulties connected to the doctrine of the Trinity. Finally, after having examined how Bonaventure engaged so thoroughly in the philosophical and theological discussions of his own day, and hence having located him very much in the 13th century, we shall draw some lessons uh, that such cultural engagement may teach us about how to function in the spirit of St. Bonaventure in our largely post-Christian world. A brief sketch of Bonaventure's life will aid our approach to his thought. Born in Bagnoregio, Italy, and the son of a physician, John Fidanza was beyond doubt a person raised in a home of some means. In this respect, his life parallels that of St. Francis, whose parents also enjoyed what we would call a middle-class position within society. Though by his own testimony healed of a childhood illness, thanks to the intercession of the recently deceased Francis, Bonaventure did not enter the Franciscan order during what must have been his primary and secondary school education in Italy. Instead, thereafter, he went to the University of Paris, doubtless at least partially on the resources of his own family, enrolling as a student in eventually, of arts and eventually garnering his MA there around 1243 or 1244. This is the portion of Bonaventure's life that formed so significantly his thought. If we take into account the Paris of, say, 1235 to roughly 1258-60, we find that the Archbishop of Paris during much of this period was William of Auvergne, who was also a former member of the theology faculty as well as the arts faculty. The predominant theologians were those already mentioned, as well as some others, Alexander Hales, John de Rochelle, Otto Rigaud, Guibert de Tournai for the Franciscans, Gerard de Saint-Quentin, Hugh of Saint-Cher, and Albertus Magnus for the Dominicans. A young Thomas Aquinas, recently arrived from Naples, would have shown up studying some, during some of this period in the Dominican house under the direction of Albert over at the Couvent de Saint-Jacques. Um, and that was, of course, all prior to their common departure to, for Cologne in the fall of 1248. Towards the end of this period, of course, Thomas Aquinas would have come back from Cologne in 1252 um, and, and hence re-entered into the Parisian community at that time. Over in the Faculty of Arts, the situation is interesting to say the least. This is, of course, where Bonaventure would have first been studying and teaching at the university. But the Faculty of, of Arts itself was very much in transition during this period. The faculty had been prohibited from teaching the natural philosophy of Aristotle in 1210 at the Council of Paris, then again in 1215 by the Statuta Antiqua um, under Robert Courson, the papal legate. Um, and that prohibition was renewed, although conditionally this time, by Gregory IX in 1231. 
Yet even that la- before that last day, masters of arts seem to have been teaching the psychology and perhaps even parts of the natural philosophy of Aristotle. As Father Gautier began pointing out in his 1982 article, publishing a treatise on the soul that he dated to about 1225 or 1227, a treatise that both cited Averroes' Commentarium Magnum on the De Anima of Aristotle and showed the influence of Alexander Hale's glosses on the sentences. Consequently, although the scholarship, including my own scholarship, does not reflect much clear awareness of this situation, the fact is that Bonaventure, in all likelihood, taught many of the Aristotelian works, including not only logic, but natural philosophy, when he was a master of arts. In other words, Bonaventure would have been among that stellar group of early arts masters, some known by name, others still anonymous, who taught the arts and philosophy during the decade of the 1240s. That is, he would have been in with figures like Robert Kilwardby, future Dominican and future Archbishop of Canterbury, and the legendary Roger Bacon. The balance of Bonaventure's life is well known to many. A baccalaureus on the sentences lecturing no later than 1250, Bonaventure would have been ready to become master by about 1253. So he would have been ready to become master um, around the time Aquinas starts his sentences lectures. During the period of his actual magistry, as opposed to the official one, those who know the University of Paris will know this, there was a huge delay for him and even a small delay for St. Thomas between the time they finished with their degrees in the real world and the time they got their degrees, because they both got their degrees on the same day by papal order. Um, Yes. Um, So both of them got their degrees officially on 12 August 1257, Um, But that was, of course, already six months after uh, Bonaventure was a minister general of the order. So it was completely irrelevant when he got his degree, actually. Still, he functioned as if he he were a normal Magister Reagent, producing during this period um, quite a few works, revising his Luke commentary, writing his John and Ecclesiastes commentaries, holding three disputed questions uh, on evangelical perfection, on the mystery of the Trinity, and on the knowledge of Christ, then during his generalship, um, Bonaventure remained active as a writer, composing his itinerarium, holding three sets of evening lectures at Paris during the 1260s and 70s, um, the famous Collationes. Um, <clears throat> and after the election of, of Gregory the, the X, Bonaventure was made cardinal, proving quite useful to the papacy in preparing for what all hoped was to be a decisive meeting with the Greek church at the up, upcoming Council of Lyon. Though Bonaventure attended the first session, he died in the midst of the council on 15 July 1274. So there you have the the life. And you see um, a point we were discussing last night. He, unlike Thomas Aquinas, unlike Albert the Great, but like Roger Bacon, had a real Master of Arts degree from Paris. And he was teaching with those people in that generation. Those are the views he knows extremely well. So let's turn to case study one, Bonaventurian epistemology. Perhaps no other aspect of Bonaventure's philosophy is as well known as his theory of knowledge. Certainly, no other aspect is so often misunderstood. Even if we set aside recent misinterpretations arising from questionable readings of parallel or earlier figures like Aquinas and Augustine, we find a variety of views on Bonaventure's epistemology. 
Most do not even seem to be aware that Bonaventure has a theory of abstraction. In fact, a rather refined one, developed over and against the competing views of several of his contemporaries. Let's take a quick look at his theory of abstraction and then bring in the teaching for which he's more famous, divine illumination. The key text for Bonaventure's theory of abstraction is book two of the sentences commentary, distinction 24, part one, article two, question four. The question whether the agent and the possible intellects are the same power or are diverse powers. The very wording of that question indicates the refinement of Bonaventure's thinking on themes much discussed by his contemporaries. And his reply indicates the extent to which this is the case. There are four different ways proposed for, in principle for understanding the relationship between agent and possible intellect. You can understand them as distinct substances, as two essential differences of intellect, as potency and habit, or as a power taken absolutely and as a power taken relatively. Under each of these ways, except for the first one, Bonaventure locates an acceptable and an unacceptable manner of understanding, understanding that approach to the agent and possible intellects. The only way wholesalely rejected is the first way, that is to understand them as two substances, which is also subdivided into two different approaches. The first of these is the Avicennian position, that the agent intelligence is a separate substance and the possible intellect a power of the human soul. But the second, surprisingly enough, is the very view of William of Auvergne, recently deceased Bishop of Paris. It posits that God is the agent intellect and that the possible, or the possible intellect is a power of the human soul. And here's what Bonaventure has to say about it. Quote, this way of speaking, however, although it posits something true and congruent with the Catholic faith, nevertheless is not relevant to the point that's at stake. For in light of the fact that the power of the intellect has been given to our souls for the purpose of understanding, just as other powers have been given to other creatures for their other acts, so too God has given us an active power um, and has done one for each thing through which it may execute its own proper operation, despite the fact that God is the principal agent in the operation of each and every creature. In this way, we should believe without hesitation that God has not only given to the human soul a possible intellect, but also an agent intellect in such a way that each belongs to the human soul, unquote. There you go. So you have to understand what he's doing here. He's saying the bishop is just flat out wrong. And this is no small matter. I mean, you think where he is and where he's saying this. His point is that this, this denies the dignity and nobility of the human soul to say that it doesn't have an active power whereby it may go into its own proper activity. So the view of having the agent intellect out there and feeding me these ideas is just not a workable thing for him. By the way, it's quite remarkable. This is the very reasoning that Thomas Aquinas will give to deny divine illumination. This is the very reasoning. Uh, and you'll see that Bonaventure's theory is much richer than that. It knows he, Bonaventure has both abstraction and illumination. In terms of the secondary literature, what we're seeing here is Bonaventure's rejection of what uh, Father DeVaux called, and Professor Gerson too, Avicennisme Augustinisme. But this is also, in terms of the primary source materials available at present, part of a pattern. Bonaventure likewise engages, either criticizing or nuancing, positions of many of his contemporaries just in this one text. I was telling people last night, I spent years 
transcribing manuscripts and getting to the bottom of this text. And it's a relatively short text. It's probably only eight, ten pages in the Karaki edition. And when you go all the way down to ground and you find people whom he's talking about when he says certain people say, it takes a long time. And he, his points are very, very precise. So he's actually completely conversant with the positions of his time, and his own position is only intelligible as a very refined, synthetic one over and against theirs. Uh, and by the way, he was very much read by a young Thomas Aquinas. There's no doubt about that. Um, so if you look at the contemporaries he's engaging, just in this one question, here's the list. Pseudo-Roger Bacon, Roger Bacon, Richard Rufus, Jean de la Rochelle, and Alexander of Hales, and at least one of the anonymous commentaries in Paris in the 1230s. That's just one question. That's what that looks like. Um, it'd be hard to overestimate if you multiply that across not only this whole distinction, but against all the many distinctions in the four books of the sentences, the task that lies before us is massive. Um, not to scare people off, but I just want you to know what this would look like if we had to do this seriously. Um, what emerges from the discussion is that Bonaventure insists that the agent and possible intellects are essential features of the human soul, that they belong to the human person in, in his, her, his or her soul in all of the status, the prelapsarian state, the wayfarer, the separated soul, and in the patria. That the two intellects are, however construed, coordinated causes of the act of understanding, and that one of the intellects does not understand thing, something separately from the other. And here we come to a, another little view I'm going to tease out so you can see how in-depth he is. Fairly common among the pseudo-Roger Bacon. I, you might wonder why I'm saying pseudo-Roger Bacon. Um, it's because Silvia Donati, I, I, I think Dr. Kimberly there knows who Silvia Donati is. Silvia Donati is one of the greatest scholars of our time. And she went through the, the sole manuscript of Roger Bacon and showed that one third of the stuff that they printed in the, the Lorem edition is by this other arts master prior to Roger Bacon and is not by Roger Bacon. And both those authors are people whom Bonaventure knows, pseudo and the real Roger Bacon. So pseudo Roger Bacon is among those people, but also Richard Rufus. Richard Rufus, of course, uh, had been himself an arts master. He, he entered the Franciscan order in 1238 and then went back to England to profess. So his views uh, expressed the particular text I edited from a dissertation. It's in the commentary on the metaphysics by Richard Rufus. Um, and it's probably dating to about 1243 because he does not know the full cross test translation of the Decomachian Ethics. So this views we're about to describe are pretty common. A very common view was to say that, and this is what Rufus says, that the agent intellect has its own little intelligibles, and that our intellects are trying to unite with the, another power of our soul, namely the agent intellect of our own soul, because it's got these intelligibles into it in its uh, structure. And we, by thinking actively the world, we, as it were, reincarnate or re-articulate those intelligibles, and then we become united with it. So it's a very curious doctrine. And the most forcible exponent of this is Richard Rufus. So this is the view, of course, that our friend wants to oppose. Um, because, of course, he thinks that agent and possible intellect are coordinated causes, and that the vast majority of what we know, we come to know through sense experience. Not everything, but the vast majority. 
So the latter option, that is the option of saying that the agent has its own intelligibles, um, is forwarded by Richard Rufus. And we could even describe it, as I have in another paper, as a kind of averroism augustinisant. I know that sounds a very strange thing to say, but actually, you know, uh, Richard Rufus is a great student of Averroes, and he thinks that this is what Averroes is talking about. But let's listen to what the subtle, oh, sorry, the uh, seraphic doctor has to say about this. Quote, and thus when we think about the agent and possible intellects, we oughtn't to think about two substances, as it were, or about two powers that are so separated that one can bring its perfection to completion without the other. I mean that we should not think about this in such a way as to believe that the agent intellect understands something without the possible intellect, and that the agent intellect knows something that the man to whom that intellect belongs does not know. For this, for these are altogether frivolous and empty claims that my intellect would know something that I don't know. That's verbatim Richard Rufus, commentary on the 11th book of the metaphysics, distinction two, verbatim. And this is exactly Richard Rufus's view. So I've just only been through two issues and you see how he's engaged, completely engaged. Why does, philosophically speaking, why does Bonaventure find such a view objectionable? A possible interpretation, but an incorrect one, would be to suggest that he rejects any form of innate knowledge. But that is actually not the case. He accepts, Bonaventure does, that at least there, there's some kind of innate knowledge of God, and that certain mortal, moral ideas and ideals are not properly speaking gotten by way of abstraction. Rather, he finds that such a picture of the human mind is problematic because it does not pay heed to the dynamic inter interaction going on between our sense and our intellectual powers in the production of the vast majority of our concepts. This concern to recognize the complex causal processes involved in our intellectual knowledge is something that we also find in the Illuminationist text of question four of the Disputed Questions on the Knowledge of Christ. The doctrine of divine illumination proposed by Bonaventure is one that alights upon eternal truths as the basis for a certain knowledge while arguing that creatures cannot be an adequate source inasmuch as they are subject to change and do not even have to exist. To try to appeal to creatures as the sources for such eternal truths, to eternal and immutable truths, Bonaventure argues in a clearly Augustinian vein, would be to try to derive the immutable from the mutable. What Bonaventure proposes is that God's light is a concurrent cause along with our own intellectual and sense powers which co-jointly produce the phenomenon that appears in our highest intellectual acts, certain knowledge of the highest truths. The model of concurrent causes, which we already saw actually in Bonaventure's discussion of the interaction between agent and possible intellects, is going to have a long nachleben in Franciscan thought. It shall, for example, reappear in Duns Scotus's account of abstraction. Yet the immediate impact of Bonaventure's refined analysis of why despite our active intellectual powers, we still need divine illumination, is to explain the qualities of our actual knowledge. And this is, going to, this is going to provoke a widespread discussion within and without the Franciscan order. In leaving the theme of illumination, I would add that Bonaventure's account of illumination combines the doctrine of abstraction and the thesis of divine illumination in the most elegant fashion that such a synthesis was ever done. For, in the creationist metaphysics of Bonaventure, creatures and their essences are at their 
fundamental reality, signs pointing ever towards the divine mind that is their source. Consequently, the deeper we dig into creaturely being for Bonaventure, the more we are directed to God in just the way that a sign points to its significant. Inasmuch as this is the most philosophical theme we shall treat in such detail, I would also like to draw our attention to just how deep Bonaventure's philosophical learning is in general. As I recently discovered while writing an article on the Itinerarium, Bonaventure appeals to Avicenna's notion of the light and its connection to proportionality between the object sensed and the sense power in his effort to uh, bring us to perceive the divine beauty and the, within the process of sensation. So imagine this, right there in the itinerarium, you would never think you could find something new, right? I mean, it must have been gone over who knows how many times. And yet I was editing one day, you know, it's an advantage of editing manuscripts. And, and I, I was like, happened to read a lot of Avicenna and I happened just the next day to pick up chapter two of the itinerarium and there's a whole sentence and a half directly from the metaphysics of Avicenna. And it's on beauty and delight. And it's right there. So unless you happen to read those two texts together, you would never even see that. And that's typical of him, by the way. When he uses philosophical sources, he does not always cite. In fact, he often just, they're just literary resonances. But there it is. Another example, uh, when we get to what was so beautifully discussed this morning, the Colation is an Exameron, and he comes to really go after the Averroist. And this is in two places in the uh, Colation. Um, pointing out, of course, what he thinks is really wrong with their approach. He uses Macrobius, he uses Augustine, he uses parts of Seneca, um, and a number of other sources to point out something that Professor Ado was pointing out for most of his life, that philosophy is a way of life in antiquity, and uh, efforts to restore it as the high point of intellectual achievement in the present life must entail a rejection of Christian revelation and its location of the highest intellectual endeavor in theology the heart of the medieval university. In both these cases, we see how much Bonaventure is at home with philosophy in all its forms known to him, and how learned he is in general in the philosophical and theological tradition of the West. Though, uh, though the items to which we're going to presently turn are more theological in nature, you will see that always does he bring out a philosophical dimension to whatever is at stake. Case study two, the doctrine of angelic cognition. The problem of angelic cognition was well developed by the time Bonaventure commented on the sentences in, 12, in the 1250s. Most theologians held that angels know things apart from themselves and God, primarily through the species that are, with which their intellects are naturally endowed at their creations, what they all, always call spekias innati, as opposed to spekias acquisitae, so innate species versus acquired species. This is plausible enough as a general account, and Bonaventure too adopts it in its main outlines. After all, angels do not have sense knowledge, and thus do not become acquainted with things by sensation, and then formulate general notions of them. Bonaventure's reasoning, however, about why angels do not need species um, outside of themselves is rather different, different than some of his contemporaries. He argues that their intellects are already actualized and directed towards created things by the species with which they're endowed, these innate species. For example, just as we may combine a whole set of notions, I was hoping there was a blue chair here, but there isn't, I'll have to change the example. Um, for example, as uh, we may combine a whole set of notions, um, that is the brown rectangular chair that's seated upon the floor in my room, 
by combining brown, rectangular, and chair, so may the angelic intellect do the same, even if the causal processes that lead it to have notions like that are, is entirely different in our case and that of the angel. The innate species model for the knowledge of the angels seems to explain, then, how angels know both general truths and perhaps particular examples of natural kinds or even artificial kinds by combining various notions they are already endowed with. So far, so good. But does this actually work? This is the worry that Bonaventure has, and very few of his contemporaries have, in the subsequent discussion. The rub is that the epistemic perspective in which such species would function as to be combinable and fit each other, so to speak, to designate a given object, um, is one in which the angel already must be aware of the individual in question. That is, it already must be acquainted with the individual to know which species are related to that one versus the species that are related to another one. To put it quite directly, the angel or myself can only apply the relevant concepts to a given individual if we're already acquainted with that individual. Now, we know how we're acquainted with the individuals through sense cognition, but tell me, pray, pray tell, how is the angel primitively acquainted with a given individual? That, my friends, is the question. Would saying that the angel gets information from the individual by species not commit one to saying that the angel has both innate and acquired species? The very position that Bonaventure has just rejected in the previous question? Here's Bonaventure's answer. Quote, For cognition of these particular things, especially contingent ones, Having innate species is an insufficient condition until the intellectual gaze of the angel. This is very interesting. The intellectual gaze of the angel, the spectus angelicus, is what he's Latin there, is turned towards the things. And its turning towards the thing requires that the thing exist, either in its own right or in its cause, and demands as well the presence of the thing inasmuch as the angelic power of understanding is limited, and for that reason, it needs to be in some proximate, proportionate, proportionate approximation to the thing when it turns towards the thing external to itself, unquote. This, I don't know, people who are 14th century philosophy, I think will immediately see what this is. Notice it was existence and presence that caused the angel to be aware of the thing. Bonaventure's position appeals to a novel type of intellectual cognition. Or at least a novel one against the background of the agent and possible intellects and, and intelligible species which dominate mid-13th century psychology. For Bonaventure is insisting that the angelic intellect apprehends the existence and the presence of the thing outside itself. And then, in light of that direct acquaintance, and he twice says in this text, without any species... So there's no species communicated by Percy Crosby when his guardian angel is aware of him sitting there trying to follow this boring lecture by noon. Believe it or not, Bonaventure has it that his guardian angel knows him as existent and present intellectually because although he's a sensible, Percy Crosby is also an intelligible. And as an intelligible, he can move an intellect which is rooted towards any and all being to his singular being. And those who know 14th century philosophy will know this is exactly the doctrine of intuitive cognition in Duns Scotus and William of Ockham. And notice the two conditions come back, existence and presence. In a word, Bonaventure invents a new mode of cognition, at least for angelic minds, 
that will in due course evolve into the famous doctrine of intellectual, intuitive cognition that dominates the early 14th century Franciscan school. That's case two. This guy's kind of smart. Did you notice that? <laughs> no, really. I mean, he's not given anywhere near the credit he should be. He invents this on his way to something else, really. So he's just dealing with angelic cognition. And he invents a whole different way to think about the intellect, uh, just incidentally. Because you know, the, the problem there really is angelic cognition. He's not, he's not, it's not a treatise on epistemology. But you have this major innovation. The theology of the Trinity, case three. The discussion of the Trinity was needless to say quite complicated by Bonaventure's time. Western Latin theologians, after all, had been working on understanding the Trinity for over a millennium and were guided mainly in the earlier period by the masterful hand of St. Augustine, whose work on, on the Trinity is very famous. Furthermore, the 12th century had produced another classic on the Trinity, Richard of St. Victor's De Trinitate, an effort to explicate more fully the procession of the third person and the precise relationship between the Father and the Son so that they would constitute a unified principle of procession. Bonaventure, of course, was well acquainted both with Augustine's De Trinitate and the work of the same name by Richard of St. Victor. What I would like to draw our attention to, however, is his discussion of a problem that traces its origin to the thought of Peter Abelard. As some of you may know, Abelard was a tremendous logician, but not just that. He did much to advance, and perhaps we should say in some respects, create scholastic theology. Yet for all of his brilliance, Peter struggled mightily with that most basic of the Christian mysteries, the divine trinity. For one thing, Peter had it that the trinity is naturally knowable by, by reason. Under the description of power, wisdom, and kindness, potentia sapientia et benignitas. By the way, that's just a position Bonaventure rejects, right? But You'll notice very forcibly he rejects the position that the Trinity is naturally knowable. Peter's idea was that anything that would fit the bill for potentia would have to be endowed with wisdom and possess pure kindness or would not actually be fully and perfectly powerful. Inasmuch as Peter identifies these three properties with the persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and thinks, too, that one can show God's existence and that God is supremely powerful, he thinks that we can know by natural reason the Trinity. Still, he has a problem, both systematically and historically, in coping with his contemporaries. He's read a good amount of St. Augustine, Peter has, and Peter thinks that Augustine's insistence that nothing generates itself, nihil si ipsum gignit, means that the article of the tree, creed that proclaims deum de deo, or in 12th century Latin, deus genuit deum, cannot be true if it's taken at face value. The problem that Babylard bequeathed to later theologians was one that drew their attention immediately. How could we hold, without allow allowing for any metaphysical or logical impossibilities, that God generated God? How could we say, Deus genuit Deum? Because nothing can produce itself, so how is that even possible? Ironically, the very intensive study of logic that Abelard's teaching promoted, he founded, by the way, at least three schools of logic at Paris in his long teaching career, soon provided the solution to this very problem, the theory of supposition. That theory holds that a term has a signification, or what we would say a meaning, but that its reference, that is to what it refers, within a proposition may change. The idea 
is that the predicate term may change what the subject term stands for. Here's an example. Man normally refers to human beings or human nature as found in human beings and hence normally picks out Socrates, Plato, or some other given man. But in a sentence such as man as a species, the term without changing its signification, without having a different ratio, will now refer to something else. It'll either refer to human nature abstracting from instances like Socrates or Plato, or if you're an alchemist, the concept of man, depending on your ontology. But here's what it doesn't refer to, Socrates, right? So this is a, this is a, uh, not a fallacy of equivocation, but a fallacy of the mode of supposition changing if I reason as follows. Socrates is a man, man is a species, therefore Socrates is a species, right? We're gonna say that. Okay, but notice I just used a formally valid rule and that ought to go through right as rain. You see the problem? Okay, so this is the problem we're dealing with. Now, believe it or not, that's exactly parallel with Deus Genuit Deum. Let's see how Bonaventure handles this question, because this is the question he asks. I'm following right in that, in that tradition. He asks whether the sentence, God generates God, should be granted by us. In book one of the sentences, distinction for the sole article, question one. Altogether, Bonaventure lists four objections against granting the proposition. In the body of the question, he then gives four rules of grammar and four rules of logic, it's quite remarkable, which he then applies to the four major objections. Let's take a look at just one of them to get the flavor of what he's doing. The second objection is that the subject term God, in the sentence God generates God, that is the first occurrence of the term God in that sentence, cannot be changed in its scope unless we introduce some qualifier, like all, some, or something like that. But no verb is capable of providing the relevant modification, and hence, the statement, God generates God, must be rejected as false. Because the subject term cannot stand for a given person, but rather it must stand indifferently for the whole divine nature, or if you want any person you like, indifferently. But clearly you don't want to let it stand, for example, for the sun. Right, okay, so that's a problem. The second rule that Bonaventure proposes and then applies to the second objection is that when a term has a multitude of subjects, it stands for, stare pro, uh, the one that makes it turn out to be true. Um, and hence, in that kind of ambiguous situation, the hermeneutical rule is that you take it to be stating something true and you take it for the relevant subject of which it could be true. That's how the rule reads. His example is fairly straightforward, and I'll just repeat it. If I say out loud in Latin, homo curit, man runs, my listeners will take this to stand for John, if it so happens that when I utter that sentence, man runs, John happens to be running. They'll take it as I'm speaking about John. So the scope of the reference in that case has to do right, with the first subject that occurs for, of which it could be true. So in the sentence, God generates God. The first term uh, <clears throat> occurrence of God should be understood to be governed by the total force of the sentence. And hence, it should stand for the subject that makes it turn out to be true, which isn't just God indifferently for the three persons, but God the Father. So although God in general, taken in abstraction, can of course refer to the divine nature, and hence for any one of the three persons, in this sentence, given that we finish this off, with deum, the with deum, right, a part of it makes it so that the it can only stand in the subject term for the Father, and so it's equivalent to so the, the meaning of God hasn't changed here. There's no new ratio, 
but now it's standing for God the Father. And so we can grant the sentence, God generated God. Notice what Bonaventure is doing is citing, and perhaps, and in my opinion, he's qualifying, because the logic I know of the 13th century fairly well, and uh, he, I don't see these rules anywhere else. So he's probably qualifying here the rules that his contemporaries use to apply the theory of supposition. This is, of course, part of his contemporaries' effort at developing a formal logic, which is going to come to its, its full fruition just at the end of that century, going into the next one, uh, and Scotus, and William Vaucom, and Walter Burley. He knows these rules and is here telling us that the theory of signification is not what is at stake in the sentence, God generates God. Rather, we can apply the hermeneutic principle about the scope of a term in reference to its, in regard to its reference, that is, sobositio or stare pro, and solve a difficulty regarding our understanding of the Trinity. So here we've had them. We have three cases. His general epistemology, which turns out to be very refined. His views on angelic cognition, which is a major innovation in intellectual, right, uh, theories of intellectual cognition, and now just this fairly technical problem on supposition regarding the Trinity, which shows how much logic he knows, which shows how up-to-date he is with the logic of his time, which was considerably developed since Abelard's time, and he knows how to use it as a theologian to, to solve a, a major theological problem. So let's just pause for a moment and consider what we've learned from these three cases about Bonaventure's thought, both in philosophy and in theology. First, Bonaventure is much more learned in philosophy than he's usually given credit for. Here, under the term philosophy, I would include both the philosophical theories of his contemporaries and near contemporaries, as well as the medieval and classical sources, such as Avicenna, Verwas, and Aristotle. Second, Bonaventure's reading of earlier theological sources is especially deep and wide, embracing not only Hugh of St. Victor and Richard of St. Victor from the 12th century, but figures from the 12th, including Peter Abelard, Peter Comester, among a host of others, not to mention a thorough grounding in the works of Augustine, Ambrose, and the other fathers. Third, and on this point, you're just going to have to take my word for it, I think, because I don't have time to go through the example of light, though Dr. Kimberly up there back there could do some, something for us, I'm sure. Bonaventure is up to date on the science and the natural philosophy of his day. He knows, for example, Grosseteste's views uh, on light very, very well. Also, he's up on the optics of his day, as well as the differences between an, uh, a, an emanationist uh, cosmology and a creationist cosmology. Finally, and this is, of course, a point well known to everyone in this audience, adding to all this learning, influencing it, and appropriating it, is Bonaventure's love of Christ, his love of Francis, and the Franciscan outlook on the human person and God. The overall conclusion suggested is that Bonaventure is very much a man of his time, a man who is at the heart of his own culture, intellectual, moral, and religious. This is indeed entirely true. But does that mean he cannot be, or can only be to a limited extent, a man of our time? Is everything I just said, in other words, merely of historical, or to use a term with a pejorative connotation, antiquarian value? I'm quite sure a number of our contemporaries would say just what I just said. Probably nearly the whole of the American Philosophical, as opposed to the American Catholic Philosophical Association, would say just what I said. I think not. So here's a said contra. At the very least, Bonaventure's own practice suggests something to us if we are willing to pay heed. Learn the philosophy and the theology of the current age. Learn it very, very well. 
And that's hard to do, I know. Sometimes we have to do double duty, right? We have to both know the past and the present and know it very well. I don't know that Bonaventure would take a position about which school or schools to follow, say in philosophy, which I know better, whether he would recommend learning analytic or continental. I, I don't think he would have a strong position one way or the other. But I do think he would think that we would need to be well apprised of contemporary philosophical and theological ideas in our own time in order to communicate truth in our own time. Even if there are real systematic problems with some of the terminology, and even if most of that terminology was crafted to, to articulate a very different view of the world, it would still be our duty to correct that terminology, which means we have to be acquainted with it. Yet equally essentially for him would be are having and understanding the principles of philosophy from the received, and now for us, medieval and ancient wisdom. It is quite often the principles of the ancients, as he understands them, that Bonaventure appeals to, for example, um, in trying to correct what he considers to be the excesses and the incorrect positions taken by his contemporaries. Another point for us to draw from Bonaventure, I think, is somewhat creative in the sense that it is an adaptation of one of his practices that has more force and importance than it did in earlier centuries. Teaching. Teaching. Think of what he does towards the end of his life, I mean, roughly 68 through 73. Bonaventure is minister general of the largest order in the world. The largest religious order in the world. That's how big it is when he's at the end of his time. And yet, even though he's been himself has been a university professor, true, by then almost 20 years in the past, he takes the time to come back into Paris and to give lectures in the evening to the whole university. These are known to us as the Colationes. There can be no doubt that a good number of the members in attendance, students in the arts, students in theology, masters of the arts, masters in theology, not to mention Dominican and Franciscan and Augustinian friars, would have, been, would have been there and would have been eager to hear what he had to say. But what, I ask you, if you think about it critically, was his purpose? Surely it was not simply to inform them. They could have learned what he was going to tell them in any number of ways, by his writing a treatise, by doing all kinds of other things. And I'm quite confident he didn't need to do it because he was bored and was out of time or something like that, had time to kill. No, that's not what he's about. And yes, he could have easily sent them a letter. Notice, by the way, at this, the crisis of their lives. This is just what Thomas Aquinas does do, right? An open letter to the theologians and an open letter to the arts masters. That's the responses of Thomas Aquinas. The one for the theologians is De Eternitate Mundi. The one for the arts masters is De Unitate Intellectus. Is this what Bonaventure does? No, no, this is not what he does. Let's think about carefully why. He's there to engage them personally, especially the younger members of the university. He's there to provide spiritual and moral example as well to be a witness to the truth. It isn't just that he's showing up to talk about some points. He's there to make a big point that the university and more generally intellectual culture is going in the wrong direction. And he's doing that by teaching in the strict sense witnessing both in his person and in his words to the truth. He's calling them back to first principles in the medieval sense, prima, first things. 
Sometimes you could say Principia. This is quite inspiring, if we understand it rightly. In our largely post-Christian age, nothing is more current, but also nothing is more countercultural than witnessing personally to the truth. Teachers do this by teaching what is true and explaining it to the best of their ability. The personal encounters with teachers is what inspires, promotes, and if necessary, checks young people. It certainly inspires them to search for wisdom, perhaps even more so than in our information age than in the past, when learning just seems to involve staring at a computer screen, is this role of the teacher even more important? Finally, much of the present time is filled with ignorance of general, and perhaps most poignantly, religious culture. Surely Bonaventure would not want to reinforce any cultural pattern of that sort. He did not, in his own lifetime, as we've just seen from the rather sophisticated discussions we found ourselves in the midst of, tolerate fools well, <laughs> including, if he thought he was wrong, the Bishop of Paris, and would not counsel us to have any truck with anti-intellectualism whether in the wider community or within the church. The theme of the new evangelization comes to mind, of course, but perhaps part of that endeavor needs to involve communicating basic awareness of Western culture and religion. In dealing with the neo-pagans of our own time, we are, as it were, doubly disadvantaged. We need to educate them to the point where the faith, whose marvelous wisdom is ever appealing, can make an appeal to them. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.